tomorrow. Because he lives, I can live. Because he lives, my God, my God. Feels like Pentecost Sunday in this house today. Something alive in this house, something organic in this house, something happening in this house today. I'm not going to belabor the time this morning. I give honor to Pastor and Sister Kyle, the leadership, their family, the leadership here of this church. And this is truly one of the great churches, one of my favorite churches to come to. And it's just always my honor to be here. On this Pentecost Sunday, I'm struck with an appreciation for what Pentecost means in my life, what Pentecost means in your life, and in particular, the eternal significance of Pentecost. It's my prayer today that two things will happen, that if you're here this morning and you've never been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost by evidence of speaking with other tongues, if you've never been baptized in Jesus' name for the remissions of your sins, it's my prayer that you will see the eternal significance of this Pentecostal experience and that you'll be moved to partake in this Pentecostal experience. But secondarily, if you're here this morning and you have been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost and you have been baptized in Jesus' name, it's my prayer this morning that you'll be gripped with an even greater appreciation for what you have and the eternal significance of what you've experienced. Because I've been around long enough to know the enemy will cheapen in our minds, our spirits. He will cheapen what, we've, what we have, the Pentecostal experience that we have. And we'll find ourselves living beneath the power and the purpose of Pentecost. But it's my prayer that somebody who's been Holy Ghost filled and baptized in Jesus' name will walk out of here with a fresh appreciation for what it is that you have in your lives. So if you have your Bibles, I'll be reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. And as you find that, I do want to once again give honor to your great pastor here, uh, such a dear friend of our family, longtime friend of our family, longtime friend to missionaries all over the world. And what this church has sown into the evangelistic efforts of the United Pentecostal Church International will be repaid tenfold, a hundredfold. God is going to bless this church because of the sacrifices that you've made over many years, something that we definitely appreciate. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. I want to jump back up to verse 16 for the thought that I'll be preaching from this morning. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And I want to preach here for the next few minutes simply, this is that. Does anybody believe that this is still that? That what we feel in this house on Pentecost Sunday 2017 in West Palm Beach, this is still that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is 
that anointing. This is that refreshing. This is that. Let's bow our heads. God, we thank you for your power. Thank you for your anointing that we feel in this house. I ask you now, God, for these next few minutes, anoint my mind. Give me your words to speak to your people. Let us be hearers and doers of your word. And we'll be careful to give your name the praise. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. You may be seated. As I said before this morning, I hope to highlight in everybody's mind, no matter where you are in your walk with God, I hope to highlight in everybody's mind just how privileged we are to have what we have and, and to know what we know, just how blessed we are to live on this side of Pentecost. And, and I hope to highlight in somebody's mind the eternal significance of this Pentecostal experience and this apostolic revelation. What you find as you read the Bible that there's so many great men and women of God in the Old Testament, people who walked with God in mighty ways, and, and we celebrate these people to this day. But even with those stories of people who walked with God mightily in the Old Testament and had very real relationships with God in the Old Testament, there is an underlying message throughout the Old Testament that says we have not received the entire promise, that we know that something greater is coming. In spite of all the experiences they had in the Old Testament. You can hear the message throughout their writings, a familiar drumbeat that says, I'm thankful for what I have, but I know that there is more. I know that a day is coming when God is going to reveal himself even more clearly. I know that a day of greater redemption is coming. I know that a day of greater revelation is coming. I know that a day of greater salvation is coming. A time is coming when God will know his people in a more perfect way. These prophets of old had some hints of this gospel message that we celebrate today, and it caused them to want to know more. It made them yearn for a greater revelation of God. They yearned for a greater relationship with God. They knew that there was more than what they were able to experience. They had the types and the shadows and the prophecies of those greater things to come, but they longed more than anything to put their hands on the substance of those greater things, but they never could because the fullness of time had not yet come. They could only hold on to a hope that a better day was coming, that no matter how far the children of Israel got away from God, that no matter how bad things got, that a greater day was coming. The Bible says in Hebrews 7:19, for the law made nothing perfect. The law completed nothing. The law did not pardon sin. The law could not purify the heart. The law could not put away guilt. The law could not restore man to the place that he had in God before he became a sinner. But it was simply a shadow of a greater plan, a greater hope, a redemptive hope. It was only a sign of something to come, that one day man would be able to commune with God again. One day man would be able to have an intimate relationship with God again, that one day man would no longer need the law. One day man would no longer have to go through a priest. One day man would no longer have to offer the blood of goats and animals. And so as you read throughout the writings of the Old Testament, you hear this familiar message in the background, something greater is coming. 
I want something to grab a hold of somebody in this house today where you understand you cannot afford to take this Pentecostal experience for granted because many of the great men and women of God who we celebrate in the Old Testament would have given anything to experience God the way you and I experience God. They would have given anything to have been in this service in the last few minutes and feel the anointing that we felt in this house. They would have given anything to be able to taste of God the way you and I taste of God on this Pentecost Sunday. Ever since the fall of mankind, even before the prophets, there was a foreshadowing of something great to come. I wish you and I could travel back in time and talk to the great men and women of God from the Old Testament. I believe we would be gripped and convicted by what we would hear from these great men and women of God. Because ever since the fall of mankind, there's been a foreshadowing of something great to come. If we could go back and talk to Adam and Eve in the garden, Adam and Eve might tell us that we've fallen, we've messed up, and we're cursed. And because of our sin, the earth is cursed. We've been separated from God. We've been cast out. We no longer commune with God in the cool of the evening but they would go on and say I heard God tell Satan I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he shall bruise your head and ye shall bruise his heel there's something interesting about that verse in Genesis 3 15 where God says, I'll put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and that the seed of the woman was going to bruise the head of the serpent. The interesting thing about this is that this is the only time in the Bible where the Bible talks about the seed of a woman, because biologically the woman has no seed. In every other situation, when the Bible talks about the seed, it talks about the seed of a man, but in this one verse, it talks about the seed of the woman, because there's a four shadowing there's a glimpse that God already has a plan that one day a child is going to be born and he's not going to be the seed of any man he's going to be a supernatural child that's going to destroy the works of Satan I can hear God say you might have fallen you might have messed up and you might not realize it but I've already got a redemptive plan I've already got a recipe to bring you back Somebody needs to hear this today. Somebody who has fallen. Somebody who has messed up. Somebody needs to hear this. That from the moment that mankind fell, God let them know, I've got a plan. You don't know it, but something is coming. A redemptive plan is on the way. And so Adam and Eve would say, things are bleak right now, but something greater is coming. I've fallen now. I've been cast out of the presence of God. But redemption is coming. I don't know where, I don't know how, but one day God is going to redeem mankind to himself. If we could travel back in time to the year 1450 B.C., we might find an elderly man by the name of Moses. And perhaps Moses with his mighty rod could talk to us about the great and mighty things that God had done in his life and through his life, the great leader that he became. And we might ask Moses, Moses, do you have the promise? And Moses would have to say, I walked with God. I led my people to safety. I received the law of God. My name will forever be known among mankind, but I do not have the promise. He would have to go on and say, like he said in Deuteronomy 18, 15, 
the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him shall he listen. What Moses is saying was, I'm a great leader, but a greater leader is coming. I'm the great deliverer, but a greater deliverer is coming. I've been a leader for my people, but one day God is going to raise up one who's greater than me. We could continue our journey to the year 712 B.C., go to the king's palace, and there we might find a prophet talking to King Uzziah. And we might say, Isaiah, have you tasted of this promise? Isaiah would have to say, I'm a mouthpiece of God. I speak the word of God, and all the people listen. I'm one of the greatest prophets to ever walk the face of the earth. But I do know that I have not tasted the promise. And he'd have to go on and say, like he said in Isaiah 28, for with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to his people, to whom he said, this is the rest, wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest. And this is is the refreshing for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessings on your offspring what Isaiah might say I haven't tasted it for myself but one day with stammering lips and another tongue God is going to do a work of refreshing God is going to give the rest to the weary if you're here today and you're weary this morning in your mind and in your spirit you have access to the rest that Isaiah could only dream about. If you're in a dry place, if you're in a thirsty place, you have access to the springs that Isaiah could only long for. My God. My God. We could continue to the year 629 B.C. and find the prophet weeping because of his love for the people of God. And we might say, Jeremiah, surely you have experienced the promise but Jeremiah would have to look up with tears in his eyes and say, I've heard from God, and I'm desperately trying to get my people to repent and turn back to the laws of God. But he would go on to say, like he said in Jeremiah 31, 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah would say, I have not tasted of this promise and I cannot get the people of God to turn back to God. But God told me that one day he's going to write his law, not on stone tablets, but he's going to write his law on the inward parts of his people and I will be their God and they shall be my people. We could continue to the year 595 B.C., Come to a prophet by the river Chebar and say, Ezekiel, surely you have the promise. Ezekiel would have to say what he said in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Ezekiel, what are you saying? I don't have the promise, but God says one day he's going to take the stony heart out of man and give him a heart of flesh and put his spirit within him and give him the ability to walk in the statutes in his judgment and so these prophets of old lived their entire lives with a longing for this promise God had given them a little look at what was going to come and it made them long for the promise 
Hebrews 11.13 says of these great men and women of God, these all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. What a powerful verse. These people, not having received the promise, but just having seen the promise in the distance, just the knowledge that a promise was on the way was enough to change the way they lived their lives. Just the fact that a promise was on the way was enough to make them men and women of faith. Just because they knew about a promise, it made them realize, I'm a stranger, I'm a pilgrim, and I'm going to embrace the promises of God. I've come to ask somebody this morning if these men and women could be so convicted and so affected by a promise that they just knew of but did not experience, how much more convicted should you and I be that we are pilgrims and we are strangers how much more willing should you and I be to embrace the promises of God? Because I don't just know about the promise, but the promise lives in me. The promise walks with me. The promise talks with me. The promise tells me that I am his own. The promise keeps me in my midnight hour. The promise speaks to me in my dry places. The promise lifts me when I need to be lifted. I thank God I don't just know about the promise, but I live with the promise. My God. My God. And we would find in our travel through time that as you close the book on Malachi, you travel through 400 years of silence. There's no word from God. Nobody saying, thus saith the Lord. Nobody talking about the promise. Nobody reminding them that something greater was still coming. And the hopes and the dreams of the promise seem to be covered by the dust of neglect and despair. Well, all of a sudden in our travels, we would hear a solitary voice in the wilderness crying out, repent ye, for the kingdom of God is at hand. My God, it's at hand. It's within reach. The kingdom of God is near. We might ask John the Baptist, have you experienced this promise? John the Baptist would have to say, no, I don't have the promise. But he would go on to say what he said in Matthew 3.11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I. My God, he that cometh after me is close. He that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. We might find the Virgin Mary, ask Mary what's going on. Mary might tell us she was a little bit confused, but an angel appeared to her from heaven and told her to fear not because that which was conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost and that she was going to bring forth a son and call his name Jesus for he was going to save his people from their sins. And then we would see a heavenly host singing the day that Jesus was born and we would see Jesus grow and become a man and we would see Jesus heal the sick and open the blinded eyes and forgive sin and we would hear him talk about being the great I am and we would hear him talk about being the Messiah, talk about being Emmanuel, God with us. We would hear Jesus say what he said in John 14, 16, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. My God. 
we would see Jesus make a triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Here the Messiah is now entering the most holy of holy places. And we would think perhaps the time for the promise to be revealed has now come. Here is the Messiah entering the holy place. But then in our travels, we would see the Messiah crucified. And hope would seem to be lost. And it would seem that the promise that seemed to be so close is now once again out of reach of mankind. But then three days later, my God, three days later, just when the reality of his death seemed to be sinking in to his disciples, three days later when the disciples are ready to come out of hiding and go back to their lives before Jesus, three days later we would see Jesus get up with all power in his hands and we would see the risen Jesus tell his disciples in Luke 24, Behold, I send the promise, my God. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And then we would see the disciples confused, huddled in a small, nondescript upper room, not sure what was going to happen next, not sure how and when the promise was going to manifest itself. But then after all those centuries of travel, after all those conversations with great men and women of God, we would finally see it happen. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The promises here. People on the outside, they didn't understand what was happening in that little upper room. They didn't understand the eternal significance of what had just taken place in that upper room. They didn't understand that mankind would never be the same again. But those on the inside, they understood full well what had just happened. Those on the inside understood full well the eternal significance of what had just taken place on that first day of Pentecost. And so Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that, my God, but this is that, this is is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter understood what he was saying. This is that thing that every song has been about. This is that thing that every prophecy has been about. This is that thing that Jeremiah longed for. This is that thing that Ezekiel dreamed of. This is that refreshing that Isaiah could only talk about. This is that rest. This is that anointing. This is that manifestation. This is that that we've been talking about in the synagogue and in the tabernacles. This is that. Mankind will never be the same. My God. Peter saying, this is a new experience, but it is not a new concept. This is a new experience, but it's not a new thing. 
this is that promise of old. But the greatest news in Acts chapter 2 is that before it was all said and done, Peter said, the promise is unto you and to your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The best news is that now that the promise is here, the promise is here to stay. Now that the promise is here, the promise is available to whosoever will. Now that the promise is here, it's here for your children. It's here for your children's children. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter your past. Doesn't matter where you live. Doesn't matter your mistakes. The promise is available to everybody. My God. The promise is here. And the promise is here to stay. I want somebody to understand this morning that this Pentecostal message is not some new interpretation. This Pentecostal message is not some man-made viewpoint. This Pentecostal message is the culmination of God's redemption plan. It is the culmination. It is the manifestation of the redemptive plan that's been foreshadowed ever since the fall of mankind. You can go back to the garden and find the foreshadowing of this Pentecostal message. Understand me here this morning. The mind of God has never changed. And so if the wages of sin is death in 2017, that means the wages of sin has always been death. And so even though Adam and Eve didn't have a Romans 8 to tell them that the wages of sin is death, it's always been in the mind of God that wherever there's a sin, there must be a death, that the wages of sin is death. The judgment of God says that wherever there is sin, there must be a death. Adam and Eve sinned in that garden, and they knew instinctively that they needed to be covered. There was something about sinning that made them know, I need to be covered. And they tried to cover themselves with leaves. The leaves covered their body, but God said those leaves were not sufficient. Those leaves were, was man's attempt to cover his own sin. But God, the Bible says in Genesis 3.21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothe them. Got to ask yourself, this was not wool. This was not the hair of an animal. The Bible is clear. This was the skin of an animal. Where did God get skin to clothe Adam and Eve? You got to understand that in that garden, an innocent animal had to die in the place of Adam and Eve, and they were covered by the skin of an innocent animal. So when the judgment of God says that there has been a sin, there must be death, and the judgment of God is looking for death, the mercies of God would kill an innocent animal and cover Adam and Eve with the sign of their death. So that when the judgment of God looks at Adam and Eve, it no longer sees the sin, but it sees the sign of the sacrifice. It sees the sign that an innocent animal has died in the place of the guilty. And so right in the garden, the idea of the substitute sacrifice is already instituted. The idea that something innocent can die in the place of the guilty. And throughout the Old Testament, the death of animals was a sufficient sacrifice to cover the sin of the guilty. But one day, John the Baptist saw Jesus walking towards him, and John the Baptist knew what he was seeing. He cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing that ye were not redeemed 
with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions from your father, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. What am I saying this morning? Blood had to be shed for the sins of Adam and Eve to be covered. They thought they could cover it their own way, but God insisted on skin. Blood had to be shed. And hear me when I say that the blood of Jesus was shed to cover your sins, and you don't have the ability to cover your sins yourself. What God did in that garden was a shadow of something to come. Adam and Eve understood, I'm guilty. I need to be covered. And they try to cover themselves. But God says, you don't have the power to cover your sins. Only I have the power to cover your sins. And God took an innocent animal and it died so God could cover their sins. So God could establish a God covering for their lives so that the judgment of God no longer saw their sin, but the judgment of God saw the sacrifice. The judgment of God saw the blood. The judgment of God saw the death in that garden. And so in 2017, you ask, how are you and I covered? How are our sins covered? The Bible says that Jesus shed his innocent blood. He's called the Lamb of God. But I cannot take the literal skin of Jesus and cover myself. How can I be covered? How can my sin be covered? Galatians 3, 26 and 27 gives us the answer. It says, for ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Somebody needs to hear this. Your baptism was not just a simple sacrament. Your baptism was not just a religious ceremony. Your baptism was not just something your church does, but your baptism is how you put on the blood of Christ. Your baptism is how you're covered. Your baptism is how you're able to rise out of that water. And when the judgment of God looks at you, it no longer sees your sin. It no longer sees your failure. It no longer sees your mistake. But the mercy of God covers you up. And the judgment of God says, yes, there's been sin, but there's been a sacrifice. Yes, there's a debt, but the debt has been paid. I'm baptized into Christ to put on Christ. If you're here this morning, you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus. Hear me when I say you don't want to go through your life uncovered. You can't cover your sins, and there's no other way to cover your sins. If you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus, I wouldn't take another step until I was covered in the blood. I wouldn't take another step until I had put on Christ. I wouldn't live another day until I was covered. I'm preaching here that this Pentecostal message is not some new interpretation. This Pentecostal message that we celebrate today is the culmination of God's redemptive plan. The Bible says that all of creation was bound by the curse of sin, even nature itself. The Bible says in Romans 8, 19 and 22, that nature, that, the crea that creation itself waits in eager anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed, that this earth itself is decaying. This earth itself is cursed by sin, and this earth 
itself is falling apart. And this earth is longing for the day where the earth can be redeemed and free from the bondage of decay and the bondage of sin. The earth is still waiting to be freed from the curse of sin. But this Pentecostal message means that you and I don't have to wait a moment longer. You and I are not like this earth looking forward to another day of redemption. But this Pentecostal message is I can be free today from the curse of sin. God has made a way of escape. God had a plan that was put in place from day one in the fall of mankind. And this is that plan. This is that revelation. This is that. This is that. My God. So the prophets of old, they knew a better day was coming. They knew they could not possess that promise. My simple message here today is that the promise is here. The promise is available to whosoever will. And this is that. If you're here today, you're bound by sin. This is that which Isaiah was talking about when he said he was wounded. For our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. If you're here today, you know that you're in a dry place. Don't leave the way you came. I'm talking to everybody. Don't leave the way you came. This is that refreshing. This is that spring. Hear this preacher when I say, we have a better day. We have a better day of revelation. We have a better day of hope. We have a better day of promises. We have a better day of possession. We have a better sacrifice. We have a better priesthood. We have a better covenant. We have a better salvation. We have a better resurrection. We have a better country. I stand this morning convicted that there is no situation that God cannot take care of this morning. There is no problem that God cannot solve this morning. There is no sickness that God cannot heal. There is no relationship that God cannot mend. There is no addiction that God cannot deliver from. There's nothing that God cannot do. I don't know every problem you might be facing this morning, but I do know the solution. I don't know every question you might have this morning, but I do know the answer. I don't know every sickness you might be dealing with this morning, but I do know the healer. I don't know every pain you might be feeling right now, but I do know the balm in Gilead. I don't know every valley experience you might be going through right now, but I do know the lily of the valley. On this Pentecost Sunday, I say hope has a name. Peace has a name. Strength has a name. Love has a name. Purpose has a name. Deliverance has a name. Salvation has a name. Security has a name. And that name is Jesus. And I'm so glad I live on this side of that revelation. I'm so glad I live on this side of Pentecost. My God, we ought to stand all over this building. Somebody ought to shout with a voice of triumph. Somebody ought to let us have an Acts 2 experience all over again. We need to have an upper room experience all over again. Somebody needs to be baptized in the Holy Ghost all over again. My God, don't stop short. Don't stop short. This is that. The promise is here this morning. The promise is speaking to somebody this morning. The promise is lifting somebody this morning. The promise is mending the broken heart this morning. The promise is speaking with the voice of purpose and the voice of destiny this morning. This is that, and he's here. Come on, musicians, come. 
musicians come. Somebody make up your mind. If you're here this morning, you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus, don't leave the way you came. If you're here this morning, you've never been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, don't leave the way you came. You can repent of your sins and you can say, God, I make myself available. I want to drink of the promise. I want the taste of the promise. And if you're here this morning and you've been baptized and you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, but you know you've been living beneath the purpose and the power of the promise, it's time to make up your mind. I'm not leaving the way I came, but I'm going to get a lifting. I'm going to get a breakthrough. I'm going to get a lifting in my mind and in my spirit. Come on, don't stop short. Step out right now. Make your way down to these altars and drink freely of the promise. The promise is here. The promise is moving. The promise is reaching. The promise is speaking. The promise is lifting. Don't leave the way you came. I feel the waters being troubled. I feel the spirit being stirred in this house today. The Holy Ghost is here. Come on, the Holy Ghost is here. The Holy Ghost is here. Don't worry about anybody else. Forget about what's happening around you. This is that, and he's here for you. This is that. He's here for your situation. This is that. He's here to speak to your mind. He's here to lift your spirit. He's here to anoint your ministry. Ah, yes, God. 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 Ah. Come on, in one mind and one accord. Just like on the day of Pentecost. Come on, church, in one mind and one accord. Let's see what God can do in one mind and one accord. Let's make ourselves available on this Pentecost Sunday. Let's have an Acts chapter 2 experience all over again.